It says, then Jesus went through the towns and villages, teaching and proceeding on his way to Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, are there just a few who are being saved? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Once the head of the house gets up and shuts the door and you begin to stand outside and knock on the door, saying, Lord, open up to us. Then he will answer and say to you, I do not know where you are from. And then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. And he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you are from. Depart from me, all you evildoers. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but yourselves being thrown out. And they will come from east and west and from north and south and will recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. This is such a shocking passage of Scripture. And I want you to really take in the full force of this conversation with Jesus. This is one of many question and answer sessions that is recorded for us in the Gospels. Jesus was peppered with questions constantly. They asked him questions about where he was from. Some of the questions were good, sincere questions, like I believe this one was. But sometimes the questions thrown at Jesus were traps by his enemies, by the religious leaders of his day, seeking to trick Jesus. Questions about taxes. Questions about his parental origins. Other times, eager seekers would come to him with genuine questions, and I think this is one of those times. And the question before us tonight is a question that, was, uh, that is as timely now as it was then. It's a simple question, and it's a question that you desperately need to know the answer to. The question is there in verse 23. Lord, are only a few 
are there just a few who are being saved? I want that question in your mind. Are there only a few who are being saved? That's a question that you need to have answered for you. It's a question about how many citizens will there be? How many real citizens will occupy this heaven that Jesus promises to all those who follow after him? How many citizens will there be? Will there be many or will there be few? It was a question asked of Jesus in a very timely moment in his ministry, and I want us to just look at this one little paragraph, verse 22, all the way through verse 30, to understand what was happening at that time and why this is just as timely of a question for us to ask tonight. So let's start with this first verse, verse 22. And I'll give you some little headings to follow. The first one, we'll call it the Savior's journey. The Savior's journey in verse 22. It says, then Jesus went through the towns and villages teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. That little verse is loaded with material that's so important to understand the ministry of Jesus. Do you recognize that Jesus was a, a real historical person? That Jesus walked on actual roads? That he encountered uh, multitudes of real people, people with parents and grandparents? He spoke with old people and middle-aged people, and he interacted with teenagers Jesus was a real historical person, and the person who wrote this, this gospel account was by the name of Luke. He interviewed a number of witnesses to find out what, what exactly was Jesus' ministry all about, and Luke is very careful as he composes his gospel account in order to demonstrate all the validity of Christ's claims. Luke is very careful to compose a gospel account that demonstrates both the divinity of Jesus and the progress that he made from going uh, from being the son of, of Mary, uh, this incarnate God, all the way to his eventual crucifixion and resurrection. The book of Luke came to us uh, connected with the book of Acts, the same author. And in this work, Luke is trying to demonstrate with his medically trained mind uh, that the gospel is something that's uh, verifiable, that these accounts are something that's true. But he wants to get the message absolutely right. And as you study through the book of Luke, you notice how often Luke will tell you exactly where Jesus is going in a physical place, what his travels were, and to the the Gospel of Luke is a lot like a map. It shows Jesus' movements from place to place. But the big picture, if you step back and were to look at the Gospel of Luke from the very beginning to the very end, you could divide it into two parts. The first part of his journey is a journey, a big picture journey, where Jesus comes from heaven to earth. And that starts in the very first verse of Luke, and it goes all the way through chapter 9 to the hinge point of this, of this account of Jesus' life to verse 51 of chapter 9, which says that the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven. You see, Jesus' teaching ministry uh, from his very start on is recorded for us in Luke, and Luke treats it like it's a journey from heaven to earth. 
And as Jesus has made that trip, as he's come to earth to be a real person, to live in actual human flesh, to uh, be raised in his parents' home and then be trained in rabbinical ways and to astound those at the temple with his knowledge and wisdom of God, but to be a real person, but sinless in every single way. Luke shows this story of Jesus' travels from heaven to earth. And as he gets to this turning point in the letter that says, as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And from this point on, every time you hear the word Jerusalem in Luke's gospel, you're reminded that Jesus has a destiny, that Jesus came to this earth on purpose. Jesus was not ignorant of who he was. Jesus is God of very God. This Messiah thing was not some plan that his uh, followers hatched in order to pin on him this uh, long-expected person to save the nation of Israel. No, no, Jesus from the very start understood that he was a man on a mission. He had been sent from his Father in heaven. He had been made incarnate. He had taken on real human flesh. He was an actual person. And I'm not trying to be condescending to you. That means to talk down to you. When I tell you that Jesus was a real person. Because sometimes I think our our Bible story mentality is that Jesus floated from place to place and Jesus glowed with all his manifest perfection as he uh, made breakfast. He would just go, breakfast, and there would be breakfast. We, we think of him like a, a magician or like a superhero. But Jesus was a real person. And as you study the New Testament, you realize that even to the very level of his deepest humanity, he, he was actually even tempted as we are, yet was without sin. Jesus was 16 years old at one point in his life. And that fact and that reality should be helpful to you as a 16-year-old. Jesus understands you. Jesus came from heaven to earth on this divine mission to rescue you from your sin. And as Luke lays it out, he says he comes from heaven to earth, and at this great turning point, he is going to be taken up to heaven, and then the journey flips, and it goes from earth to heaven. From chapter 9, verse 51 on, and every time you hear the word Jerusalem, you see Jesus resolutely set himself towards his destiny, towards the cross, towards an atoning death, towards a substitutionary sacrifice, towards what would be a gruesome execution, towards what would be in every way a sham trial that was drummed up against him, towards accusations that were leveled at Jesus, towards this trap that the religious leaders set for Jesus, and Jesus walks right into it, not ignorant of what's happening, but fully aware, saying, no one can take my life from me, but I lay it down. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing as he continues on his journey through the provinces surrounding Judea. He is moving resolutely with with passion, with purpose, with care, moving toward Jerusalem. Jesus will not be turned from his mission. 
Not by his own desire, he will not be turned. Not by Peter, who tries to rebuke him, he will not be turned. Not by the devil himself in temptation, he will not be turned from accomplishing the mission for which Jesus Christ came, to seek and save lost sinners like you and me. Jesus Christ is Lord. He is God, but he is also and was also a man. And in this journey, the Savior's journey, he came from heaven to earth, and now the story turns where he's going from earth, and he's got his face set on Jerusalem, his eyes fixed on the cross. He knows the agony that he will endure for the sins of all those who would believe on him, and he moves towards it. He's unflagging. He's unstoppable. He cannot be turned from this mission that God has given him. Jesus will do everything necessary to ransom his people and bring them to God. This is the Lord Jesus that we've been singing songs to this week. This is the resurrected Lord. This is his mission. This is his passion. And he moves towards the cross. That's the context of Luke 13. And that's why Luke says in Luke 13, 22, when Jesus went through the towns and villages, this is not just some mere travel log that Luke is giving us. He keeps reminding his readers that Jesus is moving towards Jerusalem towards Jerusalem, the place where he will be put on trial, towards Jerusalem where he will be arrested, where he will be uh, beat and brutalized, towards Jerusalem where he'll be dragged outside of the city, forced to carry his cross, and then crucified in typical Roman cruel execution toward Jerusalem as he made his way there. It's so important you understand that this little Bible story is far more than a Bible story. This is historical fact verified by this historical witness given to us in God's perfect word. And Luke is writing this for an express purpose that you would understand the Savior's goal was to make it to the cross. And along the way, as he spoke of the difficulty of salvation and what it would cost both the one who delivered Israel, the one who died on the cross, and what it would cost all those who accurately weighed the cost of discipleship. Jesus comes to this point and gets asked a very important question, and that's our second part. First, the Savior's journey, and uh, number two, the important question. The important question, verse 23. Someone asked him, Lord, are you our only Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? What would provoke a question like that? Well, I think a few things. One, the experience of the people. They had seen massive crowds following Jesus at the beginning of his ministry. No one records this better than John in his gospel. Huge crowds of people flocked to Jesus because he was amazing. His teaching was with such authority. People had never heard someone preach like Jesus preached. And they'd come and listen to him, and they were in awe of him. And not only that, he proved his divinity repeatedly by demonstrating his power over nature, his power over disease, his power over the demonic. 
And so people would gather to Jesus. And not only that, because of his great compassion for people, because he was a savior, he would provide for these people in physical ways, not only healing their diseases, but feeding them. Sometimes massive stadium-sized groups of people, Jesus would make lunch supernaturally and feed them and provide for them physically. And it caused an enormous crowd to gather, and people would have been quick to say, oh, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a disciple of Jesus. I'm a follower of Jesus. Have you seen this guy's stuff? He's great. They were quick to identify with him until his teaching got hard, until his demands became evident. You see, you couldn't follow Jesus just a little bit and kind of follow your own way. You see, Jesus' demands then are the same as Jesus' demands now. All true disciples must abandon everything. And so they had heard Jesus' teaching, and they had watched this crowd shrink. That's reason number one. Experientially, the disciples now are down to 12 and a few followers on the outskirts, but nowhere like the massive crowds that Jesus saw at the beginning of his ministry, nowhere like the massive popularity Jesus had at the beginning. Now it was becoming more difficult, uh, increasingly hostile towards the followers of Jesus. And so this person asks a very good question about, are just a few people going to be saved? Because this really has winnowed down to a smaller uh, group. What's going on here? Not only that, not only have they seen the crowd shrink, they've listened to his words. They've heard him raise the cost of discipleship. They've heard him speak of the necessity of repentance. Chapter 13, verse 3 Unless you repent, you too will all perish. This wasn't some goofy, happy, smiley message that you see on Christian TV. This was a serious call for you to abandon everything precious to you and the sin that defines you and to follow Jesus and Jesus alone and to trust him completely. That was the message that they had heard him preach over and over again. And sometimes it came very straightforward and sometimes it was veiled in a parable that left people scratching their head saying, what is this guy doing? When is he going to make us free lunch again? Uh, suddenly the miracles were starting to cease. Uh, the people motivation for following him had to become true discipleship, and they realized this was going to cost them, it became very evident that Jesus was on a collision course with the religious leaders, and so following Jesus was less popular now than it had ever been, and so finally, someone gets up the guts to ask Jesus an excellent question, Lord, and that could just mean sir, this isn't necessarily a question asked by a disciple. But someone asks him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? Are just a few being saved? This is an excellent question. This person is asking more than just a percentage question. I don't think they're asking what percentage of mankind will actually make it into this heavenly citizenship that you've been talking about, Lord. This person's asking a genuine question, a crucial question, because they understand what Jesus has taught all along, things like, what shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? 
It was those kind of teachings that had provoked this exceptional question so that they could understand, is there any chance of being saved? This is a good question. It shows that they're listening to the teachings of Jesus. It shows that they understand that being saved is more than just saying, thumbs up to Jesus, I'm in. This is a good question because it understands that Jesus came not to feed people, not to make people happy, not ultimately just to heal earthly diseases, but Jesus came with the express purpose of saving. And so it's an excellent question. Lord, are only a few people recognizing the difficulty of Jesus' demands of being his disciple and then recognizing the great purpose of Jesus coming from heaven to earth and earth to heaven to seek and save sinners? It's a good question. Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? It's a very important question a question you may still wonder about today. And as the cost of following Jesus becomes more evident, it never changes, it's always the same. It will cost you everything. You will deny yourself and you will follow him. But as it becomes more evident in a world that's becoming increasingly hostile to Christians, some of you are going back to school in the fall and you will encounter a whole new level of hostility towards your intolerant faith. A whole new level. You will arrive on campus and you will see a seismic shift that's happened this summer about the very basics of Christianity, that God made this world and he made people in his image, men and women, in his likeness. That's hate speech now. And so it's going to become far more evident who Christians are and who isn't willing to identify themselves with this Jesus. And I wonder if you'll start asking this very important question, how many are only a few? Is it but a little that are going to be saved? That's the important question. Let's look at the next verse. It's the urgent plea. It's the urgent plea. He says in verse 24, he said to them, Jesus speaks, he says, make every effort to enter through the narrow door because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading. First, it's the urgent plea. You know, I read you this paragraph. You know what happens here. He's about to tell them that many who think that they will be saved will not be saved. Many who consider themselves friends, acquaintances, big fans of Jesus, that Jesus is their homeboy, Jesus is someone who they admire, Jesus is a prophet they think highly of, many of those folks will, on this final day, be shut out of God's kingdom, will not be allowed to enter. That's where this story ends, right? What I love about this story is that Jesus' words begin with 
a urgent plea. Though he will not directly, but indirectly answer this person's question. He doesn't answer directly, but he does answer plainly. And he goes far more than a simple yes or no answer. Instead, he begins with something that reminds us that Jesus did indeed come to rescue sinners, not to shut sinners out. Jesus came to save contrite people, repentant people, people who feel the weight of their sin, people who recognize their own spiritual bankruptcy, who recognize that they don't have what it takes to be in God's presence. And Jesus pleads with them from the very start of this speech, which is going to be a very difficult sermon uh, for these people to hear. They are going to be told, most of you will burn in hell forever. That's where Jesus is going. But what he says first ought to grab your attention because in it we find the Savior's great compassion. We find his very heart because he is the Savior. And he says, make every effort to enter through the narrow door. That phrase, make every effort. And maybe your Bible says strive to enter through the narrow door is one word opening in Greek, a strong word, a word that you all are familiar with, uh, agonizomai. It's a word where we get the English word, well, what word? You know. Agony, right? Agonizomai. It's the word agony. It means to fight. It means to struggle. It means to push. If you've ever tried to get on a bus in a third world country or onto a subway in a third world country, they agonizomai to get on that train. There's a lot of elbows and a lot of pushing and a lot of funneling. It's a hard struggle. It's a journey. It's a word that was used in the ancient world in the Olympics for a wrestling match, for a fight. It's that kind of a word. It's a pushing. It's a shoving. It's an aggressive kind of word. Jesus tells people that they must strive to enter through the narrow door. What in the world does Jesus mean by telling people to strive to enter through the narrow door? You are aware that salvation is by faith and not of human works. You're aware that there's nothing you can do to earn or accomplish this salvation. So why does Jesus say strive to enter through the narrow door? Why does he urge them towards action? Why does he tell them that they must fight for this, that they must lean towards this, reach towards this, that there must be a necessary spiritual exertion in them? Well, before he shows them how desperate their condition really is, he wants to plead with them, to plead with them urgently that they must do everything necessary to demonstrate their desire to belong to Jesus, to be in union with Jesus. Flip back to chapter 13, verse three. Jesus just gave them a speech about a national tragedy that happened and they wondered, the people who suffered in that tragedy, were they worse than others because they died? You see, their fundamental assumption as Jewish people, they were taught by their leaders that being Jewish was enough to get every one of them a place at Abraham's table. They were told from birth, hey, we're all going to heaven, we're God's people. 
And Jesus spent so much of his ministry correcting that wrong thinking. And he does it here in 13.3. I tell you, no, unless you repent, you too will all perish. You'll all perish unless you repent. A biblical understanding of repentance teaches us that there's a necessary humility, a necessary desire, a necessary striving, a necessary sorrow that is centered on what our sin has done, not just to us, but to God. That our sin is an offense to a holy God. That our sin has alienated us and separated us from a holy God. And so we're able to see the necessity of repentance. And repentance is something that is not going to be the equivalent of you floating on a spiritual life raft all the way to heaven. But it is going to require the exertion in your very soul of the faith that only God can give you as you express to him in deep and dire honesty, the reality of your sin, the ugliness of your sin. You pour it all out of your mouth to heaven's throne and you say, God, I acknowledge that I have sinned and that my sin, though against others, my parents, my friends, my schoolmates, is ultimately against you and you alone. And it's that agony and it's that striving and it's that desire that gets rid of the high school word that we learned about in the game tonight that could threaten your very soul. It's the word whatever. That is such a dangerous word for you to own in your vocabulary. I know you usually use it about, you know, at lunch today, did you want corn dog or pizza? It's okay to throw a whatever at corn dog or pizza. But if you have apathy, if you have indifference towards your soul, listen to the words of Jesus when he says, strive to enter through the narrow door. Don't just lay there. Don't just float. Don't just have a passive, lackadaisical, apathetic, whatever attitude towards your soul. Instead, have a deep spiritual exertion to say, I will find Jesus. Because Jesus eagerly rewards those who seek him. Because Jesus never casts out those who call out to him. And when your call and when you're seeking and when you're running in pursuit of Jesus is genuinely concerned for your own soul and the glory of God in his son Jesus who gave his life for you, he will reward those who seek him. And so Jesus says to them, don't just lay back. Don't just count yourself among the elect. Don't just trust your rich spiritual heritage. Don't just say because I went to camp region, I'll be fine because my parents and my parents' parents were churchgoers because I haven't done as bad of sins as some of the other kids at school. Do not be deceived. Instead, don't lay there. Don't float. Don't say whatever. Strive to enter through the narrow door. It's often that Jesus would compare himself to an entryway, a door, a gate, or the part of a sheep pen that opens. You see, Jesus saw himself as the point of access to God because he was the only point of access to God. More on that tomorrow from Pastor MacArthur. 
Jesus was the way. He's the truth. He's the life. It was the only way to the Father, and so he commends them to fight for the sake of their souls, to enter through this one appointed way to be made right with God, to be reconciled with God. You will not find salvation in any other world religion. You will not find salvation in a syncretic approach to mixing up all the religions you've ever heard of. You will not find salvation in being a pretty good person. You will only find salvation in Jesus Christ. That's why he calls it a narrow door. There aren't 13 ways to heaven. There aren't two ways to heaven. There's one way to heaven. Jesus goes on to say, for many, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Let's call this point four. Of five, so we're almost there. Point four, the shattered expectation the shattered expectation. For many, I tell you, Jesus said, will seek to enter and will not be able. That alone would have blown their minds. Jesus, are you saying that there will be Israelites, that there will be God-fearing Jews who worship Yahweh in the temple that will be excluded from heaven? This is a shocking shattering of their expectations. Their religious leaders told them, you'll go to heaven by virtue of your association with Abraham. Because you're a distant relative of Abraham, you're okay. And it just wasn't true. Because Jesus was the only way, repentance was the only proof And for them to hear Jesus say that many will not be saved was a great surprise to them. They would have been surprised to think that they could actually be shut out. Their expectations were shattered. The fact that they could somehow miss salvation was news to them. And this is a surprise to them. I mean, they knew Jesus Many of them were very familiar. Many of these people had had conversations with the Lord. There is a person in his presence asking him a question face to face that he's actually answering. And for him to say, many will not enter. Though they'll seek to enter, they won't be able. Friend, this is as true now as it was then. What keeps you from heaven is not that God's door is too narrow to let you in. It is that you have a total inability, a total inability because of your sin. Every one of you, though you feel quite free to do whatever you want to do, is a slave to your sin. Your sin owns you. It is your master and you obey it from the first day in this world. That slavery to sin manifests itself at this age in lust and pride and rebellion and selfishness. 
And it's those things that will keep you out. It's not that the door's not big enough. It's not that the offer's not wide enough. It's not that the Savior's not gracious enough. It's that you love your sin too much. That's why Jesus says many will not be able. I know a group like this has lots of fresh young Calvinists in it who understand the sovereignty of God because you're well taught. But do not blame your lost condition on God's electing grace. Do not blame your lostness on the fact that you don't think that you're predestined. Blame your lostness on what God will condemn you for, which is your unflagging commitment to sin. Give up your sin and come to Christ. Strive to enter through the narrow door. Don't be among this many who will seek to enter and will not be able because these people are having their expectations shattered as Jesus continues to explain that a day is coming that they will come to see him. I'll tell you to seek to enter will not be able because the head of the house, and Matthew clarifies in his parallel account that the head of the house is Jesus himself, will get up and shut the door. In the ancient world, a house would have the door locked from the inside uh, against Uh, any intruders, and the the father of the house, uh, it probably still happens in your house today. It's how it happens at my house. Uh, I lock the doors before I go to bed. Why do you lock doors? To keep the creeps out, right? That's why I lock the doors. It's why we have keys. It's why they did it now. It's, It's why we do it now. It's why they did it then. He says a time is coming when there will no longer be an opportunity to enter through the narrow door. The door will be shut. The door will be locked. And many of you will be standing outside and will be knocking on the door. Why do you knock on a door? This isn't a knock, knock joke. I'm genuinely asking you. Why do you knock on the door? Because you want to come inside. And that's exactly why these people are knocking. They're knocking on the door. And they're not only knocking, you can see that their expectations have been shattered and now they're starting to be desperate. Their plea is almost as significant and heavy as the Savior's plea. The Savior says, strive to enter. They respond, Lord, open up to us. It's a frightening scene because it's about to be covered in fires of hell. And they see this and the people say, Lord, open up to us. Open up to us. And it's too late. He will not let them in. He's the head of the house. It's his prerogative when there is no longer an opportunity for salvation. And a day is coming when Jesus will return and he will shut that door. A day is coming that we talked about in Psalm 39 where your life will end and he will shut that door. There is no opportunity for salvation after the grave. There is no opportunity for salvation when you refuse the offer of Christ. A day of judgment is coming and it will either come with his return or with your demise. And no matter how much you knock, he will not answer. You must come when the door is wide open. But they knock anyway because they want in, because they're desperate. And they were surprised that they were shut out and their expectations were shattered They missed salvation, and their surprise turns to disappointment, and it turns to frustration, and so they answer him back, don't they? They say, sir, open the door for us, and he will answer, I don't know you 
or where you come from. Now, I told you earlier, Jesus is God, which means he knows everything. So why would he say, I don't know you? Well, the issue is, is he doesn't know you as one of the residents of his house. If I locked the doors when we got home after camp and I heard a knocking on the door, I would probably get my shotgun because I have one because I'm an American and not a vegan, obviously. And I would want, I probably wouldn't, it's, it's probably someone I know, but maybe I will this night. And if I hear a knocking on the door and I see some grisly weirdo with a knife, I am not going to let him in. I'm going to call the cops and I'm ready. If I see Owen Duke Duncan in his pajamas outside, I'm going to put down the shotgun and open the door. He's my son. He belongs inside. I accidentally locked him out. It happens sometimes. Sorry. <laughs> and I'm going to let him in. Why? Because he's a member of the household. He belongs upstairs. What's he doing outside? Likewise, Jesus, it's not that he doesn't identify these people in his omniscience. He knows every one of you. He knows how many hairs are on your head or are not on your head. Jesus soberly says, I don't know you and I don't know where you're from. In other words, I have no saving relationship with you. I have no familial relationship with you. I have no identity with you. You do not belong to me, and I do not belong to you. You have not come through the narrow door when the door was opened. Therefore, I don't know you, and I don't know where you're from. You are a stranger to God through Christ. And that is an amazing thing to be called a stranger of the omniscient God. For him to look at you and say, I have no idea who you are or where you're from, is a statement of separation from God. And it's separation that will never end. But they reply to him, we ate and drank with you, and you taught in our streets. That's classic first century Judaism. They're even arrogant about their streets. This part, I think, is hard. This part is so hard because Jesus is saying to these people, I don't know who you are and I don't know where you're from. But the saddest reality is that these people are positive that Jesus does know them and that they know him. And they even have evidence of that. And if this were the only time this was recorded in Scripture, that would be one thing, but it's not. Depart from me, I never knew you, is something that Jesus repeats in all the Gospels. Jesus identifying that he cannot identify people who are not a part of his plan of salvation that have not entered through the narrow gate, that are alienated from him, who have not genuinely repented, this is an enormous statement that Jesus denies people who claim to know him because their claim is false. These people 
knew Jesus personally. They had seen him physically. And I think we're probably tempted to think that they're at some enormous advantage because of that. You know, wouldn't it be cool to travel back in time and be able to see and hear Jesus teach in the streets of Jerusalem? Wouldn't that just automatically guarantee that I would be a real Christian and I would be so good at, at following Jesus? It wouldn't. It didn't for any of the people there. And their claim to know him because they socialized with him, because they went to a wedding where he was at, because they had tasted the food that he had made miraculously, because they had become really well acquainted with his teaching. Maybe they had a little notebook they carried with them, cool stuff Jesus said. Uh, They knew Jesus' teaching. They'd been in his presence. They'd been around his disciples. Some of them would have been intimate friends with some of the closest disciples of Jesus, but they were not part of him. This is why this is such a scary part for me because I know that this is far more than a sentence he'll say to some Israelites in Jerusalem from way back in the day. The pleas that sinners will have who are in close proximity to Christ and to his church will be innumerable. Many will say, I heard all about you at church. My parents homeschooled us, and we learned about Jesus every day. Many will say, I went to Camp Regen. I was there. I used to sing songs about you. But if you do not truly and savingly know God, then God does not truly and savingly know you. It involves both. You must have a saving relationship with Christ, and Christ must have a saving knowledge of you. And the key to this whole thing is repentance. They knew him socially. They'd been to his parties. They'd had interest in his sermons. They were amazed with Jesus, but it wasn't enough because Jesus must know you personally. This is where John 10, 14 helps us understand. I am the good shepherd, Jesus said. I know my sheep and my sheep know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this pen. You skip down a little further in that verse and the Jews gather around him and say, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, will you just tell us plainly? And Jesus says, I did tell you, but you did not believe. The miracles I do in my Father's name speak for me. You do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. Jesus defeats the final boast of unbelief through the doctrine of election in that text, but more significantly and more pressingly, Christ must know you personally, and it must be mutual. You see, the sad reality is these people never repented, and now their bitter frustration unfolds 
And he replies to them again after they express familiarity with Jesus. He says, verse 27, I don't know you or where you come from. Away from me, all you evildoers. And it's here we enter into the very final section of this this section of Scripture. And we've seen the Savior's journey from heaven to earth and then to heaven again. We've seen the important question, uh, how many will be saved? Uh, We've seen the urgent plea of Jesus to say, strive, agonize to enter through the narrow door. We've seen the shattered expectation of religious people who think everything's okay for them because of their religiosity. And now we see the eternal perspective on the whole story. That's the fifth point, the eternal perspective. And it's from Jesus himself, the Alpha and the Omega, the one who knows the beginning from the end because he was there in creation, and he will reign for all eternity. He tells you, he warns you, he shows you the future. Verse 28, there will be weeping there. Where? Outside of the house, outside of the kingdom, outside of the citizenry, outside of heaven. What will it be like in hell? There will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth. A familiar expression if you've read through the Gospel of Matthew, it's a compounded expression of grief and sorrow. It's to cry so much that you break your teeth together in desperation. It's beyond sobbing. It's beyond heavy tears. It's wailing and gnashing of teeth. The irony of this is these people refused to be sorry over their sin. But on that day, they still won't be. They'll be sorry over their state. You see, sorrow over your state of lostness will not be enough to bring you to repentance. But it's sorrow over your sin It's wailing and weeping over the reality of your sin and what it cost the Savior. It's wailing and weeping that you've dishonored God, your creator, that you failed to worship him as you ought to. But there they'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, name them, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Amos, Malachi, all of them, all the prophets, John the Baptist, put him on the list. All of them will be there. He's telling this crowd of people who would have known the Old Testament very well. They would have known the, Moses, uh, the, the words that Moses had preached. They would have admired these spiritual leaders in their own heritage. They would have been looking through like a crack in the gate and seeing all of these famous prophets, all of these revelators, all of these who've gone before. And he chooses Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob, I think to show the span of time that there will be people from every generation of revelation inside of this kingdom and you will be shut out. All those prophets were telling you the truth. Jesus isn't saying something different than the Old Testament is saying. He is saying the same exact thing that Abraham was saying. He's saying the same exact thing Isaac was saying. Jesus is saying the same thing Jacob is saying. Jesus' message is the message 
of Ezekiel. It's the message of Moses. It's the message of Malachi. It's one message. It's that God alone can save sinners who turn from their sin and trust in him. That God alone can provide a perfect atonement that will wash away your sins that was only prefigured in the Old Testament but realized in the sacrifice of Christ. He says, they'll all be there, but you yourselves will be thrown out. This is the eternal perspective on salvation. And it's not just a Jewish thing. Verse 29, people will come from east and west and north and south and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. Heaven is often referred to as a feast, a celebration a participation in a common meal with one another, with Christ as our host. That's what heaven will be like. And can you imagine the conversations at that dinner table? You have a question for Abraham? Because he'll be there. You've got a pressing dilemma from the book of Genesis? Well, you could talk to Isaac about that or Jacob about that. You have questions about Ezekiel's temple and the reconstitution of animal sacrifices? Probably not, but I do. And Ezekiel will be there. And I can ask him. And not only that, there'll be people from every tribe and every tongue and every language who will be there who've abandoned their sin and embraced the Savior and His work on the cross, who've trusted in the One who rose from the dead And it doesn't matter ultimately where you're from. It doesn't matter where your parents immigrated here from. It doesn't matter what your background is, what your spiritual heritage is. None of that counts. All that matters is do you know God savingly? Because on that day, there will be people from every generation and there will be people from every tribe and tongue and nation. And so Jesus isn't willing to answer this question of saying uh, there's hardly gonna be anybody in heaven because that's not the case. Heaven will be massive. It will be full to the brim of worshipers of Jesus that Jesus himself has gathered to himself. It will be a massive celebration. But the reality is there will be far more who have shut themselves out by not entering through that narrow gate. And Jesus just reminds us that this is a race that's gonna be very confusing. Indeed, there are those who are last who will be first and first who will be last. Jesus came was a person and did miracles and lived a perfect life in Israel, yet he was rejected by his own people. But when that message went out in the book of Acts that Luke is about to transition to, people that speak all kinds of weird languages far outside of God's covenant people will be quick to rush in. And so your place at the table isn't determined by your spiritual heritage or what your background is, the last will be first and the first will be last. That's the eternal perspective on this whole thing. Jesus is a man on a mission to save a people from their sin. And that mission culminates at the cross. Luke gets there, it takes him a few chapters to do it. But this teaching becomes a reality when the Lord is crucified in Luke 23. He's accused falsely. 
It says he stirs up the people. The soldiers ridicule and mock him, dress him in an elegant robe, mocking his claims of being king. He's disowned by his closest disciples. The crowd keeps shouting, crucify him, crucify him. With loud shouts, they insisted and demanded that he be crucified and their shouts would prevail. And Jesus is led outside of the city to be killed. The perfect lamb of God, the man who never sinned, who would be a perfect and pure sacrifice for all who would believe in him. And as he climbed that hill, he would look at these same people and say, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. The point of the cross of Christ is not that you would feel sorry for Jesus. He accomplished salvation on purpose. He redeemed a people for himself and for his glory. He was not defeated at Calvary. The purpose of the cross is to make you realize what your sin cost and to take up your cross and follow him. Strive to enter through the narrow gate. One of my favorite works of literature is called The Pilgrim's Progress. It was written by a man from Bedford. His name was John Bunyan, and his employment was a tinker. He fixed stuff. He wasn't highly educated. He was a normal guy. But he could preach. And when he was stuck in jail for preaching... He wrote a book that is one of the most read and reproduced books in world history. You know it. The name of the book is Pilgrim's Progress, and it takes an account of a man whose name is Christian who goes on a journey to the celestial city. It's heaven. And at the outset of his journey, he's considering all that's required to make it to this distant city he sees so far away. But he knows he must go there to be saved. His family's unwilling to accompany him. His neighbors mock and harass him. And as he takes out on his journey, the entire village surrounds him with this noise of mockery and these pleads from his friends to stay and not to go. The voice of his own wife and children are ringing in his ears saying, Don't go, Father, don't go. But he knows he must pursue this journey to heaven. And he has to go alone. The sound of his family and their voices and his neighbors and friends become so unbearable that he closes his ears with his fingers and he runs outside of his town in pursuit of that eternal city. And he yells as he runs with fingers and ears, eternal life, eternal life, eternal life. He knew that he couldn't bear it anymore, that the poles of all the pleasures of his life were too much, so he had to run and he had to close his ears and he had to scream about what it was he was running towards. He strove to enter the narrow gate I pray you do exactly that. Father, thank you for these young people. Help your truth to seep deep down inside them.
as you seek and save lost sinners this week through the gospel. May they believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Amen.